Hey, welcome back to another episode of Addicted to MRR. Today we have Will Schroeder. How are you doing, Will? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, these uh, these podcasts ultimately end up coming out a little bit delayed, but here as we record on March 26th, the world feels vastly different than it did even a few weeks ago. What do you think? <laughs> I think it's a vast understatement and, and we got a lot more room ahead of us. Yeah. Days feel like weeks. Hours feel like days. It's, uh, it's yeah. a weird world we live in, but you know, thankfully, uh, I'm sure you feel similar. In a lot of ways, as entrepreneurs, we're thankfully kind of built for this in in the new model, new era, and having so much technology at our disposal, at least. Absolutely. And I think we're also quick to adapt, which, yes. which is really critical here. And I think you're going to see a lot of innovation come out of this. I think you're going to see really the best of people, you know, in some cases, a little bit of the worst of people, but I think mostly the best of people. Um, and so it'll be the defining time for everybody, which is, uh, to be honest, I'm excited to see what happens. For sure. My biggest wish personally is that this can be kind of a galvanizing moment for people to realize that we have a lot more in common than we do uh, separating us, similar to how after 9-11, people kind of found a way to get past their seemingly insignificant differences uh, and, and row in the same direction. So that that's my biggest hope out of this whole experience personally. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be a, a defining moment for all of us, and hopefully, uh, it becomes something that isn't nearly as concerning as it as it appears to be right now. And I really hope that's the outcome. For sure, things that a few weeks ago seemed like world enders are now completely trivial. <laughs> so, uh, exactly. Well, hey, let's uh, let's get right into it. Um, you know, I'm really excited to have you on today. Uh, it seems like our mutual connection here is Andrew Warner of Mixergy, who was on last week, and you know, I did a little bit of research on you. Uh, I've seemingly known about your products and services, but I didn't actually know that much about you. So I'm really excited to kind of hear more of the backstory. Uh, is it fair to say that your your main sort of focus right now is startups.com? That's my only focus. Right. And so how would you describe startups.com to somebody in an elevator? Sure. Our job is to help people understand the startup journey. So from the moment you have an idea to the moment you launch, what are all the things that you need to get done? Most people are starting a company for the first time. It's not something anybody's ever taught how to do properly. And so everyone kind of runs naked in the woods for the first time, and it usually ends really poorly. <laughs> so what we set out to do was to create a product that would help walk people through the entire process. It pretty much comes down to three pieces. We've got one piece around education to kind of teach you everything you could possibly want to know about everything from splitting equity the first time to raising money when the time comes. Uh, we've got a community of 20,000 experts that are at the ready that can be on a call today, uh, talk about any topic you could possibly fathom. And then we've got a bunch of software to help you raise money, find your first customers, write a business plan, et cetera. And we do all of that within a $29 a month subscription fee. That's uh, that's pretty incredible value for $29 yeah, a month. <laughs> it's crazy cheap. How many uh, paying members do you have or, or you know, what approximate uh, monthly recurring revenue are you at? Just to give people an idea of sort of where you're at in the, in the scale and process. Oh, sure. Uh, the only number that, that we cite is that we're an eight-figure business, so you can kind of map that back however you want. But we don't cite specific numbers because we're a private company. That's that's fine. Yeah, I just want people to get an idea of the size of the business, you know, because it's different sure. challenges if you're at yeah, $500 yeah. a month, $5,000, $50,000, or $500, Absolutely. you know, whatever. So uh, just give people an idea of where they are kind of in the journey. With this kind of thing as a community, do you find that churn is a problem because people have to be constantly using it to see the value out of it or because of failed startups? Like what, what, how is churn a problem in your business? Well, unfortunately for our business, churn is our goal. Now, <laughs> that sounds antithetical to most MRR businesses. But remember, our job is to get you off the blocks and out into the world. Once you're out into the world, once you've launched your your company, 
most of what we have isn't useful to you anymore. Now, that's not all of it. We do have a business called Zirtual that helps put a person on your team, kind of like a virtual assistant, if you will. And we have a lot more mature businesses using that. We have folks that still use our Clarity product where they engage other experts, etc. But I would say that our core focus is in the formative stages of a company. And by way of that, if we do our jobs well, you'll be leaving. It's kind of like a dating site, right? If a dating site does its job really well, you won't pay them anymore. Yeah, that's fair. You know, you know, a dating site will want you to pay a whole lot more for the add-ons and in the, in the process of finding the perfect person. But once you do find them, you no longer need their services. <laughs> right. So it's a bit of a catch-22. Now, ours is a little bit different because the way we look at the business and why we do startups.com is simply because we really care about helping founders. And so for us, it's bittersweet. Yes, our founders will drop off and, and not pay us anymore. But our our whole goal and our mission and our focus is to get people to that point. So we can only feel so bad about it. Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't your first, you know, go around on the block. Uh, what what really prompted you to to start this in the first place? I know you said what your mission is, but what, you know, you woke up one day and decided you really needed to accomplish it. I mean, was it sort of a slow burn? What, what made you want to get started? <laughs> it was my wife telling me to stop starting more companies. <laughs> The way she put it was, we were living in Santa Monica at the time, and I was running five startups. When I say running, I don't mean I was just angel investing or sort of involved. These are all companies that I started myself. They were my ideas. I was still in the mix, in the weeds with all of them. And three of them were venture-funded companies. Needless to say, I wasn't sleeping. And at some point, my wife pulled me aside. And she's like, look, you're the happiest person I've ever met. Like I'm boundless optimism. She said, but you are running yourself into the ground. Like You're doing all of these things because you can, not because you should. And I'll never forget this exa- like exactly those words that kind of just stopped me in my tracks. And I said, damn, you're right. You know, I need to, I need to get some focus here. So I sat down and I said, I'm going to stop doing everything that I'm doing. I mean, totally heretical at the time. And I talked to all the people that were involved in all the businesses, brought in other CEOs, brought in other folks. And I said, within six months, I'm going to be unwound from all of this. And I'm just going to go on a hill somewhere and stare at the sun until I figure out the one thing that I want to do. For what it's worth, like that sounds like it's going to become a cool story and it does have a happy ending. It was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Because at that very moment, I was kind of called to arms to say, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I couldn't come up with an answer, which sucks even more. You know, as an ambitious person, you want to believe that when you've got the big questions in front of you, that you know exactly what the answers are. And it turned out that I was just asking the wrong question. I was asking the question, why is it, uh, you know, what is the one thing I want, I, I want to do? How do I want to change the world, et cetera? And what I should have been asking when I eventually came to is, what do I enjoy? And when I thought about that, it made the whole catharsis so much different because at that point, I just started listing off the things that I love to do. And I said, maybe I'll find a way to make one of them my career. Turns out all of my friends are founders. I mean, I absolutely love founders. The more you get to know me, you'll understand why I do what I do now. But I said, if I were to just pick what I'd want to be doing on Saturday... I said, my favorite thing to do on Saturday is have dinner with my friends. And we just sit around and we talk about... uh, big ideas. And again, they're typically founders. They have a lot to talk about. And I said, I wish I could just have that conversation every day for the rest of my life and somehow get paid for that. 
And it, you know, that sounds like maybe what an investor does, but I'm definitely not an investor. It sounds like what a consultant does. And I spent 10 years in professional services. I never want to do that again. And uh, it turned out that I was just really good at helping people through the startup process. And so I started to think about what that might look like. And that led to what's become startups.com. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, in first of all, when you were telling the story, I thought, are you me a little bit? You know, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, my wife works at a children's hospital and uh, she'll oftentimes like to point out sometimes about, you know, hey, uh, you know, you're doing a lot of different things. You know, <laughs> what things make you happy out of this? You know, asking me to sort of drill down. And it's always fresh to have a, a set of eyes that that love and care for you and want you to have the best. and um, to get you to look a little deeper and, and, you know, it's, it's okay to not have the answers right away, but these are the big life questions. And, you know, I think looking at the hierarchy of needs, it's good to be in a position to be able to contemplate within and reflect on those kind of questions. Right. So sort of the ultimate goal. It is. And it's, it's also really hard. It's really hard because we're all trying to come up with this picture perfect essay answer. And the truth is most of what we want to do are the things that we care about aren't necessarily tied to a job, right? And sometimes a job is just a means to that end. But ideally, you know, the ultimate prize is to make a job the end, to make the job exactly what you want to be doing. Part of what I kept finding out when I dug into my, my own world and psyche was that a lot of what I was doing was a means to some other end. And so I just said, why don't I just fast forward to the end of the story and just work on what the end looks like. Just work on whatever I want my retirement job to be. That way I don't have to be running toward it anymore. And that's essentially what I did. I just basically built startups.com around what I wanted my retirement job to be. And it eventually became a business, became a big business. And, and I, I think those two things are intertwined. But I also just think I was fortunate that what I cared about morphed into something that could also pay some bills. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. We all hope that you know one day we can do what our retirement view would look look like as our day-to-day job and get paid for it. <laughs> that sounds like the dream, right? I, I think people take it a little bit literally, though. I think people say, well, I love to golf, so if I'm not a professional golfer, then I guess I can't do it. That's not true, man. If you love to golf, there's a million different versions of how you can get paid in the golf industry. Being a professional golfer just happens to be one of them, right? Again, same with me. I now run a platform that helps 1.2 million people start companies, and that's cool. But that wasn't what I set out to do. I just knew I wanted to help people start companies. It eventually morphed into becoming the product that it is. And so that's, you know, it's, I think we just need to set a, a general goal that we want to get toward and then figure out what businesses and opportunities would allow us to, to work toward or within that goal. Sure. Enabling the model. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm kind of curious, you know, when you talk about startups.com as a platform, and I see that in your messaging on some of your marketing across the different sites, you know, I was surprised as someone who's used Clarity as a provider, you know, people have requested calls with me through Clarity before. I was kind of surprised to see the messaging around startups.com. I'm assuming that you acquired some of these items like LaunchRock or, or Fundable Clarity. I mean, which one of these are initiated by you and which one of these are acquired by you? Sure. Uh, so we acquired six companies. And the, the, the challenge early on, to, to just give you a little bit of backstory on it, the challenge early on was that when I started to think about how to help founders through their entire journey, there were just so many stops to that journey. What I did is I just mapped out from the moment you have the idea to the moment you launch, what are all the places that you get stuck? Think funding, business planning, customer acquisition, etc. And I said, well, I could help with just one of those, but then I'm going to be constantly handing people off to another one. And I'll never really be able to, to kind of uh, raise all the boats at once. And so I said, well, 
let me see what I can do about helping people at each point of the journey. And then I looked at the product roadmap and said, it's going to take forever. It'll never get done. So then the other alternative was to acquire companies like Clarity that had already done something really well in a space that I needed to be an expert in and see what that would look like. So we went out, I spent about three years, talked to hundreds and hundreds of companies, and we ended up doing diligence on 40. We made six offers and six acquisitions. Cool. So who runs each of those individual operations? Because I, you know... Uh, as a as an entrepreneur myself, it's it's tempting to to get excited about an idea, or in your case, you know, a a piece in the stack, and want to have your hands involved with it. And maybe you do to a certain extent, but I found that every time that I tried to be heavily involved in more than one, again, lost focus, went right back in the weeds, right, and my core mission usually got a little out of focus. Didn't get lost, but out of focus. So so how do you guys operate with so many different? sort of organizations and cogs in the wheel? <laughs> Everything that's that's run in our properties, it's run as part of a product, not as a business. So Clarity doesn't run as a business. It just runs as, as a part of our feature set. So the same people that work on Clarity, work on Zirtual, work on Launchrock, work on startups.com. Uh, e- even the technologies behind them are all integrated. Wow. Okay. Well, that's that's pretty cool. So you don't have even like individual teams? Like you don't have like a Clarity team and a and a virtual team other than maybe dedicated support or something? Or is it really... Yeah, virtual is a little bit different because it has a little bit more infrastructure because it's people-based. But short of that, no, uh, we all work on the same things together. I, I'm essentially the product manager across all pieces. Interesting. So how do you balance then, I guess, sort of ignoring sections of the business or, or letting them decay? Because, for instance, we run Campaign Refinery, which is a marketing automation tool. And what we found with a lot of other marketing automation tools in the past is they tried to do everything. And, you know, maybe they would improve their checkout, you know, their shopping cart experience a little bit. But while they were doing that, their actual email product would fall behind, right? Or then they'd start working on landing pages and then the the checkout portion would start to be neglected a little bit. How do you balance the focus between the multiple different products? Even though I realize you, you see them as a feature set, how as a team do you make sure that they get sort of equal love? Yeah, so th- there's a few few answers to that. The first answer would be a lot of the products when we acquired them were pretty far along. I have this notion, having seen built a lot of products in my almost 30 years as a startup founder, that most products kind of hit their peak in functionality. And from there, they get lots and lots of additional product cycles, but they don't the, the, the utility and the marginal benefit is kind of gone. And so what we look for is we look to try to get our products to an 80 to 90% feature set whereby, yes, we can add more stuff. And if it's all we had to work on, we would. But I, but I don't know that we'll actually make it any better. And a lot of people, you know, that's, that's kind of hard to digest for a lot of people. But I have to say, is Microsoft Word any better now than it was 10 years ago? Not really. And then 10 years before that, probably not. The value came when they created an online or a, a desktop word processor. Right, adding some really bizarre spell checking feature didn't really fundamentally change the product. You're saying Clippy wasn't a major milestone. <laughs> Clippy was exactly what happens when you have nothing else important to work on. Yeah, I mean, it just is. And I don't. People don't like to talk about that. You know, they don't like to say, "Oh no, well, you know, we kind of did all the important work on our product four years ago." And not every product's the same. Some products do require a tremendous amount of refinement. And I'm not saying that ours don't. I'm saying. We we're very very conscious of where a product has hit kind of that peak cycle and where it needs 
substantial overhauling and where it just honestly is probably as good as it's going to be. Or at least as good as it needs to be. Um, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with the functional utility and diminishing returns, you know, because we, we, we do have two products because I actually got my start with contest software with a tool called Contest Domination. And that has not needed a lot of changes to it over the past few years. And so it's, you know, I, I invested a lot in it, in it early um, and it got, you know, 20,000 customers and it was great, but it hasn't needed significant reinvestment since then. So it's sort of been, you know, to use the old classic business school term, a cash cow, right? Like you, you don't sure. have to put as much into it and it's been fueling the development of our new, of our new tool campaign refinery. But uh, I appreciate your answer. It's just, it's, it's always difficult when I think about different brands and functions because when my mind gets into a mode, right, when I'm really thinking about contests, it's hard for me to then switch and think about the the explicit nuance of what a really good workflow looks like in an email marketing automation app, right? Like it's, my, my focus tends to go pretty deep. So for me, at least, it's hard to toggle between the two. I, I mean, for myself, and, and again, I, I can't project my own utility on anybody else, but for myself, I go to where my passion is. I find, just like you're saying, if I find that I'm in the zone around a certain product, I just stay focused on that product. Uh, not because it's even the most important, but it's because where I'm getting the maximum amount of output in my creativity, my flow. And whenever I try to short circuit that, whenever I try to change gears and say, well, this thing other here, over here probably needs my attention more because you know something's broken, something's timely, etc. It never goes that well. But whenever I'm so focused on something that I can't stop thinking about it, it consistently, consistently creates my best work. Yeah, I would agree. How does that turn over into your just sort of general day-to-day work philosophy? Because I know when I when I work, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, you got to work certain hours or whatever. And I, I've never really subscribed to that. I, I feel like if I, as long as I'm being productive, I'll stay in front of the computer. If my productivity is dipping, I'll step away because I can get yeah. more done in two hours of hyper-focused, excited work than, I, than a lot of people tend to get done in eight hours of I don't want to be here work. <laughs> so, oh, absolutely. So absolutely. what does your day look like then on, a, on an average work day with so many different brands in the mix? A lot of what I try to focus on is what my peak output hours are. Uh, most of my job involves being creative. Little known fact, uh, almost everything you would read on startups.com was probably written by me, whether it's landing page copy, or whether it's an article or a class you're going to take or homepage copy, whatever. Uh, I'm our chief copywriter uh, and I'm our social media person. I have like 20 jobs. But the point is, all of those jobs require a tremendous amount of um, creative output, including all product development, etc. And so I tend to stay very focused on a, a specific thing. I try to get it all out of my head. And once I have, you know, let's say I've got two hours this morning where I just crushed it on something and I just had so much stuff out of my head. And uh, and at the end of those two hours, I just don't have a third hour in me. I don't stop working. I just shift my work into what I consider to be tier two tasks. Tier two tasks are bullshitting with people on Slack about something, um, doing clerical work. I'm also our CFO, so working with the director of finance and some stuff there. Just stuff that doesn't require creative cycles. So for me, day parting isn't about number of hours. It's about just switching to primary stuff, which is creative, and then secondary stuff, which is clerical. Yeah, administrative stuff can be a time suck. It's important, but it's it's not as material as a lot of people think, right? Like you, if you left, uh, like my dad always made a joke, you stick a thousand people in a building, if you just leave the 
the sewer working and food and water inbound, they'll keep themselves busy forever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's, you know, it's not that it's unimportant. It's just that uh, sometimes it, it needs to sit lower on the totem pole for sure. Yeah, no, I get it. And I think that the, the, the thing people get hung up on are number of hours. And I talk about this a lot and I used to be the long hour champion. I'm not exaggerating. I worked 80 to hundred hours a week for 20 years straight. And you know, a lot of people say that, but when you really dig into it, it didn't happen. There's no way you're running five companies at the same time in your free time. I just dedicated every waking hour to working. And I, I, I could go to a whole diatribe about why I think this was a huge mistake, but the net of it is right now, I don't think about long hours. I probably put in 50 hours a week, which comparatively to me, that's a vacation. But at the same time, I'm wildly militant about how I spend my time. You know, making sure that at which point I'm burnt out, burnt out a little bit, I got to shut it off and I got to go do something else so I can put some of those hit points back so I can get back in the game with fresh legs. Makes a lot of sense. So I got to ask, you know, I, I first really discovered about the pricing model behind startups.com when I saw you on AppSumo. So yeah. as a company who you describe as, you know, an eight-figure company, normally people tend to go to AppSumo when they're just getting started to kick off their audience, to do a lifetime deal, to, you know, grow their initial audience, get user feedback, get some cash in the door. What prompted you to want to go to AppSumo at this stage in your business? <laughs> uh, it's, it's only funny because I tried to buy AppSumo. I, I reached out to Noah Kagan. Uh, this is years ago. It's years ago. Uh, and Noah wasn't in the process of selling. So I don't want to... I was talking to pretty much everybody. And I thought at the time, there might be something interesting with AppSumo. But that's where the conversation got started. And he uh, had me work with some of the other folks on their team, great team, talking about their model. And I just... I got really fascinated about how their pricing models worked. And AppSumo was a game changer for us. Not because of a particular campaign we did. Although actually, now that I'm thinking about it, they did mention that we were we did a couple of their top 10 campaigns over the years, which is really cool to hear. But that wasn't really the game changer. The game changer was when I was sitting down with the team over there and we were talking about what an AppSumo deal might look like. They said something to me that at the time seemed ludicrous, but in retrospect, changed our business. They said, you know, one of the things that sells really well on AppSumo are lifetime deals. And I thought to myself, why the hell would anybody want to do a lifetime deal? Like that's the, that seems like the antithesis of MRR, right? You know, and, and we're an MRR-based business. And he said, well, you know, depending on how you look at it, if you look at your LTV and you can do a lifetime deal that looks anything like your LTV, then you know you're you're actually just collecting all the money up front, which I understood, but I didn't I didn't really quite get it. And so uh, when I say get it, not that I didn't understand the concept, I, I didn't see it in action. So anyway, so we ran our deals a few years ago with one of our products called bizplan.com. And I think at the time, bizplan was maybe $19 a month. Now it's included with our overall subscription for $29 a month. Uh, but I think it was $19 a month. And I think we did a lifetime deal at $49, let's say. Um, if I'm off by, by $10, not not ton. And I think the average LTV on that product at the time was about 100 to $120. So still, on an LTV basis, that was a huge discount off of what we'd otherwise collect in LTV. And you got to pay them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so it, was, it wasn't a great deal economically, no matter how we did it. But that's not what blew me away. What blew me away was the behavior once we launched it. It became, one, again, one of their top 10 deals of all time. And what blew me away was how many people were buying the product on spec. Now, that's a pretty common behavior 
at, at AppSumo where people see a good deal and they just buy it because they might you know put shelve it and use it someday. Scarcity. Um, Scarcity causes them to buy it for sure. You bet. You bet. But what was interesting to me was how many people were saying, you know, I'm not ready to start a business right now. I don't need the product right now. That's the key. I don't need the product right now, but I can foresee a need. So I'm going to buy it. It's the Groupon mentality, right? I don't need that, you, you know, this this one, you know, 50% off a haircut thing right now, but I know I will need it. So I'm going to buy it for that future value. And so uh, what we saw were a ton of people that would have never been customers of ours at the time, just because they didn't need the product at the time, buying. And so we kind of took all that information and we went back and said, well, really, our product is a bit of a moment in time product. You know, you don't necessarily need it the moment you find us, just like people listening to the podcast right now might not need help starting a company, but they might next year. And so we started to explore a lifetime subscription. And again, our product price point's a little bit higher. LTV is over $200. So it, it ran into a higher number. So it, it came out to $199 for a lifetime subscription. And so we moved it to our site. And I'll discuss if you want my theories about how pricing, how, how you should experiment with pricing, three tiers and what have you. But we moved it out to our site. And lo and behold, more than half of our customers started buying the lifetime product, which think of how different that is for us. Right. If we're getting our LTV up front, think about what that does for CAC, what it does for cash flow, what it does. I mean, everything you could think of. Definitely. That's a that's a monumental shift. If if you're basically getting paid in advance on on half of your sales, that's amazing. Hundred percent. And and this goes back to one of the things I talk to startups about all the time. I said, if you haven't tested every variant of pricing, you have no idea what your business really is. And, and people don't understand how serious of an allegation that is. That. If you don't really understand the maximum you can charge for your product, the maximum um, LTV you can get from product, etc., you don't really understand your business. And it's a huge challenge because there's so many vectors and dynamics to the business that can't operate unless you have the full picture. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a, a parallel example that comes to mind is in the shopping cart software world, uh, especially in the marketing side of things. There's a couple different providers out there like Samcart, PayKickstart, and Thrivecart are three of the popular ones in our circle. And Thrivecart is the only one that offers lifetime pricing. In fact, they exclusively do lifetime pricing. And they've they've held steadfast to the concept that they are convinced that they're actually earning more money than their counterparts because of LTV. So it's it's interesting, you know, because the shopping cart is something that's very sticky. I would say it's very similar to email marketing automation, right? Where sort of once you're in, you're in. And if it's making money for you, why would you ever stop paying? So it's it's definitely an interesting philosophy considering the other providers are completely against ever offering at any price lifetime. So it's interesting dynamic. And here's the thing. For us, we know that there's some planned obsolescence in our user base. And in, in the future, we'll continue to roll up more products that kind of extend our LTV and, and are more ongoing. But we also don't want to lose focus as to what we do really well, which is take startups from the idea stage to the launch stage. So we're trying to also stay within our lane. Some of our products, again, will continue to have LTV beyond that. Not really what we're worried about right now. Yeah, it's interesting. So one of our guests in season one was a credit repair company that did a subscription and they effectively have 100% churn within 12 months <laughs> because it's the same kind of thing as you have planned obsolescence. So you think about that, you think about other things that are moment in time as you described, such as the wedding industry, right? I mean, you Right. Ideally, you only get married once, right? So, right. <laughs> you know, there's a number of things where, you know, 
as much as we as business owners love the concept of getting paid on an ongoing basis so long as we're providing value, sometimes that just doesn't quite match where our prospect and our customer base is in the way that they consume and get value from our products in the first place. Right. Agreed. Interesting. So what what has uh, encouraged you to stay on AppSumo? Because your offer is still available for startups.com. Well, really, the benefit to us is the same either way. The ongoing purchases that come out of, of AppSumo are are reasonably good. And from our standpoint, whether people uh, come in at you know an AppSumo price, a full price, whatever, doesn't really make a difference to us because our biggest focus is just getting the product in the hands of founders and trying to help them out. Yeah, I guess that when you also look at it from the lens of the multiple products you have for the multiple stages of a business too, if they come in at an entry point with the reduced lifetime price through AppSumo just for startups.com, that's still cheap customer acquisition to expose them to your other products in your stack. Yeah, it sure is. And from our standpoint, there's a bit of a cumulative benefit to acquiring more customers because the more customers we get on board, the more customers become part of the community, which then actually help other customers. If you think things like Clarity, et cetera, where most of the folks that are on there helping other founders uh, taking calls are founders themselves. And many of them have gone through the startups platform. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, when you think about customer acquisition in general, most people, you know, the, the holy grail of, of spinning ads to acquire customers and using tripwires and upsells and all that is to have a self-liquidating offer, right? Something that you're net positive day one. Um, and I guess an AppSumo deal kind of guarantees that, right? That they walk in um, with at least some cash in hand to where you, you didn't have to really pay per se. I mean, you, you did in discounts, but you didn't really have to pay out of pocket to acquire that customer. So that's that's right. a great place to be in. Agreed. So, you know, obviously you had past success and I'm, I'm sure it helped with your network of individuals, but I do like to ask, how did you get the first 10 paying customers for startups.com and how did that change the narrative about where startups.com is today compared to when it first got started? When we first started, we knew we weren't going to be able to offer a comprehensive platform that could offer all the things that we do now. So we had to start somewhere. And so we started with a product that we developed called fundable.com, which helps people raise money online at the dawn of crowdfunding. So this is circa 2010 going to 2011. We launched in 2012, right as the Jobs Act came around. And that was really picking up on the momentum of crowdfunding. However, people have you know limited memories in these things. When we launched our crowdfunding platform, Fundable, everyone and their brother launched a crowdfunding platform on every possible topic you could imagine, like every week. <laughs> so <laughs> our timing was good, I guess, because you know we were in the right place at the right time. But this is one of those weird things where somehow just everyone was in that place at the same time. I mean, th- th- there was hundreds of other companies launching. Yeah, well, that definitely makes it difficult being a crowded marketplace. It does. And it's also the kind of business where you're not looking for lots of customers. You're looking for exceptional customers. So think somebody like Kickstarter who did it on the the reward side. We're doing an equity, which is very different. On the reward side, they had Oculus that that went through there. You know, they had had a whole bunch of, uh, of hits. But those essentially drove the company. In that case, when you're talking about the first 10 customers, what we were doing was we were looking for folks that either had a, gotten seed funding you know, or had some sort of you know momentum uh, that were very early on in the process. And we were just calling these people directly. So we weren't hoping people would just show up at our doorstep and sign up for the product. We were out there actively prospecting folks. And so what did those first 10 customers look like? And how did you get them to say yes? Well, uh, at the time, crowdfunding was so kind of experimental particularly in equity. Again, rewards with Indiegogo and Kickstarter had already had some momentum. People could figure it out. You could get rewards to fund products. 
But equity was a little bit wonky because it doesn't work at all in the same way. You're not mass marketing to people. You're really marketing to a, a very fixed list. However, founders are constantly looking for capital. So the idea that they could maybe accelerate some of this process or open up some doors for new investors was really appealing to them. Although to be fair, none of us actually knew whether it would work. And so when we talked to them about getting on board, we said, look, we've already got an existing network of investors that we've reached out to that are, that are going to look at deals in the platform. We can't broker deals. you know, We're not representing deals. But we've got a little bit of a critical mass of folks that might be interested in, in funding deals. And so based on that alone, there really wasn't a lot of downside for folks to, to join. It's a fair amount of work because back then and even a little bit today, you were creating a fair amount of collateral to get folks interested in the deal. And then it's kind of like herding cats. you know, Raising money at small check sizes is very difficult to do. So we were trying to make that process easier. And it was just really at the formative stages of the entire industry for what it is today. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. You know, but it sounds like at the end of the day, just picking up the phone and calling people <laughs> was sort of the key to getting those first customers going though. Here's what I always say. If you know who your customers are, you should be doing sales, not marketing. Right? In other words, if you know all of my customers are CTOs at at these company at this type of company, then you should be hiring a sales force and calling them directly. I mean, to me, and to, to be fair, I ran an ad agency for 10 years. So it's been a lot of time in this, in this thought process, in this discussion. In that case, we knew who the startups were. You know, we could hop on services like Crunchbase and do some diligence to find out who had been funded and call them and say, hey, are you interested in working with us? Conversely, if we just tried to get PR, you know, this is really before social was a big thing at the time, et cetera, and hope that these companies show up, that doesn't make any sense. Because we know who they are. We have the wherewithal to call them. Let's just get them on the phone and, and see what we can do, which was definitely the right move. In, in other businesses that I've started before, we did exactly the same thing. We just said, if you know who your customers are, call. Yeah, definitely. So I have a good friend who's a real estate agent. Uh, I know this is not startups, but he takes on larger, sort of more boutique type of listings. So like one of them was an RV campground that was condo minimized and he you know has sold islands out here in the san juan islands like big big multi-million dollar properties right and most of these properties have had other agents with the listings for years and mm -hmm. he comes in and is able to actually sell them and his big difference is he makes he, his actual passion is, is video <laughs> so I, I say you know you got to be one of the highest paid video guys in the world um, <laughs> because you're basically just looking for an excuse to go do some cool drone videos and right, right. you know gimbal footage and you get paid like you know a quarter million dollars when the, when the property sells but his big thing is he makes that to highlight it but then you know like in the rv park scenario it's pretty simple right he was dialing firms that invest in and purchase rv parks and it's like duh you know you have this it's not just a normal house. You have a boutique sort of business decision to make. And so let's go find people that buy exactly what we sell. And as a result, he took something that had been on the market for many, many years. And even with some challenges with the seller and whatnot, was able to actually sell it for more than the, the seller was originally trying to get um, and actually get a bit of a bidding war for something that sat there with no nibbles at all for, you know, like six years. <laughs> I love it. And I love it. It's because, you know, targeted Facebook ads to the right a demographic of people and literally just picking up the phone call, calling Japan, calling Vancouver, calling, you know, hey, I got this park. Here's the specs. Do you think your firm would be interested? And as a result, you get a nice payday. So um, I agree. If, if you can understand who your target is and go after them, that's that's amazing. I, when I look at a lot of tools that have sort of floundered, it usually comes down to lack of clarity in their customer. Like, who is your right. customer, right? What is Agreed. your actual positioning 
Um, you know, I know that we even fall into this trap sometimes because email marketing can be used for anyone, right? But like you look at someone like ConvertKit that has done a really good job about being for quote creators. Clavio has done a really good job about being for Shopify stores. The more right. you can hone down who you're after and what you're wanting to do, makes it a lot easier to actually just get after it and start getting those people to, to buy as a salesperson as opposed to marketing in your terms. Yeah, absolutely. So that, you know, that's obviously a campaign that worked well. What has not worked for you? You know, this is, you know, especially one that you maybe thought was going to do well, but sort of flopped. Have you run any campaigns or any initiatives that you just thought were going to be amazing and totally fizzled out or blew up? Anything like that? I would say social marketing has been a really weird bear for us. And I say that uh, our social presence has been damn near nil for eight years. And I've actually just taken the lead on uh, ramping that up over the past month. So, I mean, we're very early in. But what we learned about social over the eight years where we did it really horribly or not at all was uh, two things. Eight years ago, social wasn't that important. Uh, Now it's critical. It's probably the most important form of marketing. But where it's funky is where we've been able to do targeted advertising, you know, like SEO uh, and PPC, et cetera, social is just such a weird, bizarre bird for us. You know, even though we can get persona-based marketing and targeting, et cetera, the messaging and the buy processes are just so much different. So I would say this, I don't know that we've ever run a successful campaign on social. And I'm talking about paid social, organic social, et cetera. We just can't seem to figure it out. What's bizarre <laughs> is that other partners, including AppSumo, uh, Stack Commerce, other folks that we've worked with in the past, have run amazingly successful social campaigns uh, with our own product. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the most frustrating part. We know it can be done. These guys have made an ungodly amount of money doing it, but we just can't seem to figure out how to replicate the success. So social is definitely the team to beat for us. Organic, as far as SEO, organic or paid, those seem so obvious, but the, the challenge we run into with uh, with those campaigns and that type of marketing is that there's a fairly limited core keyword set for what people are going to be Googling to find us. And when it starts to expand, like if somebody says, find angel investors, they're going to find us. They'll line up on Fundable or something like that. But if they Google something like start a company, that has such a broad intent to it. It's really hard for us to triangulate and and, uh, tie that back to buying intent, time intent, etc. for us. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any theories about why you've struggled so much on social? We don't know what we're doing. It's not, there's, there's, there's no theory at all. <laughs> it's a hundred percent the answer. We will. We're about to. We're about to know everything there is to know. But uh, historically, it was a combination of not having the right expertise in house and a fundamental issue with us as a management team. And I'm all point to myself specifically, not appreciating the the, the platform for what it was and how it had evolved. And I think we ignored it for too long and we paid the price. Now we got to go fix it. Yeah. Well, you know, the that's the beautiful thing about running businesses is it's a, a constant journey of discovery. So <laughs> finding new ways to grow your own skill set and expertise. You know, we, we all started knowing nothing. So, <laughs> you, you know, yeah, it's always and, good to remember. Well, what's funny is uh, a lot of people don't know this about our business, but we've done almost no marketing for the past eight years. You know, we've our our budgets, our team, everything. We're, we're always incredibly small, and the businesses grew mainly because the products have a, an organic element in each of them, and that's been great. But at some point, when we get to a certain size, and like I said, it's a, it's, a, it's an eight figure business now, the organic train kind of runs out, and you got to be able to kind of supercharge things. And so I think 
part of the reason we were able to ignore it for so long was because things were going just fine without it. And we're at a size now that like we have to, you know, we have to do things quite a bit different to get to the next level. Well, you know, I think this is sort of a, a good time to sort of make the transition towards uh, what is personally my favorite part of it. You know, I enjoyed everything we've talked about so far, but my favorite part of the whole conversation is uh, shedding a little bit of light on the mental health part of running a business and being an entrepreneur. You mentioned that you used to work crazy hours for, you know, 20 years or so. Um, so maybe your perspective will be a little bit different. But when we think about starting a business, and I've seen you tweeting recently about, you know, dealing with startup failure and the challenges there. Uh, when we think about being this deep in the weeds and being this emotionally and financially invested in the things that we're doing, there's a lot of mental health associated with that, right? There's stress, overwhelm, anxiety, panic attacks, depression. And there's a lot of different ways to maybe mitigate that as well. So, you know, as someone who has dealt with panic attacks myself and a lot of anxiety, um, but has still found ways to be creative and productive, I'm curious, what sort of mental health challenges have you experienced throughout your career? And then what things have you done to try to mitigate any downsides that you've experienced? About, let me do the math here, eight years ago, this is right around the time we were launching was fundablestartups.com. Sitting with my coworkers and we're just having lunch, talking about whatever. And I, and I looked at him, I said, guys, I don't know what's going on. I, just, I don't feel right. It's kind of hard for me to explain, but honestly, I just, something's off. And uh, it wasn't emotionally. I just like, I just felt strange. And so we got back to the office. I got in my car and I was driving home and I only live five minutes away. So it's a short drive. I'm on the highway talking to my wife. And I said, I did, something is off. I can't quite explain it. And just as I said that, my whole world went black. My heart stopped. It, it only stopped for a short period of time. But as it turns out, your heart's pretty important. <laughs> it's impossible to not notice when it stops beating. And uh, and fortunately, I didn't lose control of the car because I just kind of got back into it and made it to my house. And I called my coworkers because they were kind of right behind me. They're only five minutes away. I said, hey, guys, something's way off. I'm on the floor of my living room right now. They came rushing to get me uh, because we're idiots. They took me to the Minute Clinic because it was around the corner. Uh, the Minute Clinic was like, <laughs> you need to be in ICU like right now. So next thing I know, I'm in an ambulance uh, cruising down to the ICU for what would be a, a, an extended stay. And I'm in ICU. My family's there. I just had a, a daughter at the time. She's eight now, of course. And my wife's there. And the doctor comes in and he said, because they've been doing all, all these tests, and he said, good news, you didn't have a heart attack. <laughs> I was like, well, only in my late 30s, I would hope not. And he said, you actually have a strong heart. He said, you had a massive panic attack. I said, what do you mean? No, I've never had a panic attack before. I don't even know what that means. And he said, let me show you something. He said, here's a list of life events. Check any of these that have applied to you in the last year. Okay, and they're all the life events that you might think. Uh, get married, have kid, new job, move, death in family. You just go down the list. I just checked all of them. right? And, and here's, uh, here's where it blows me up. He said, look, all of these things that are happening, you're used to compartmentalizing everything. You're used to being able to take things like, oh, I had a kid. People have kids all the time. No big deal. Got married. People get married all the time. No big deal. Start a company. I've started eight of them. No big deal. And you keep saying no big deal, but they are a big deal. And you keep pushing them down, you keep pushing them down, you keep ignoring them. But your body is not ignoring them. All that stress you're putting on top of yourself and as hard as you're running yourself and all of these life events that are happening that you're not processing, your body is eventually going to give up on you. And when you're driving your car, talking to your wife, that was your body's way of saying, game over, I'm done. 
I didn't even see it coming. No forewarning signs, et cetera. But after that, I went into this whole rabbit hole of all my behaviors, et cetera. And that was the part where I stopped working 80 to 100 hours a week. It wasn't just the hours. It was the whole mentality that I could just run myself as hard as I wanted and there would never be any outcome. And it's not true. Here's the kicker though. After that happens, this is why I tell this story. After that happens, I go and talk to my friends who again are all founder. I tell them very transparent. I want to warn other folks of this happening. You know what happens? Everybody reaches back out to me and says, oh yeah, I have panic attacks all the time. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I had one last week. I'm like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, all of you have dealt with this and no one's mentioned it. And we talk about things endlessly in detail. And how has this never come up? And it turned out this was just generally a thing a lot of people don't talk about. To be fair, it's actually more of a guy thing than, than, a, than a female thing. But uh, yeah. And well, it helps so, that, you know, startup field is skews heavily male. So, I mean, <laughs> well, right, right, right. And, and guys, I think, again, I, I don't want to uh, suggest that, you know, an entire gender acts one way that's just not proper, but I think we just process it differently. And I don't think for us to be able to say, I, I, I'm injured, I have to come off the field. I think it's, you know, it's, it's some ego there. It's and a vulnerability thing. Able, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's a vulnerability issue. And I think I think women deal with it much differently. They deal with it better, by the way, to be to be clear. And I was like, you know, f that. I'm not really in a place where I, I want to be able to to shy away from helping other founders to let them know that this stuff happens. And I have to say, to put this in perspective, I've been a startup founder. It's the only job I've ever had for almost 30 years. I do nothing all day but help people start companies. I know everything there is to know about starting companies. That doesn't mean that that I'm amazing at it. it just means i know a lot about it and that's how i feel imagine how a founder feels who's never done this before assumes that every mistake that he or she's making is solely because of them not just kind of how this how the process goes and has everything on the line with no guidance to let them know that hey this is part of the process or hey you'll be okay or hey take a break hey step back etc that's what terrifies me is that lots lots of other founders are going to go through the same thing and not understand what a critical issue this is. What you just described is exactly why we talk about this on the podcast. Um, because right. I, I feel exactly the same way. You know, I I dealt with panic attacks and I have anxiety that, that creeps into my life in weird ways sometimes. <laughs> and for a long time, I kind of thought I was, you know, maybe going crazy or the only one experiencing that. And when it became enough to start changing some of my behavior and I started, you know, being more open about it, I had the same exact experience that you just described of when you tell people, it's pretty shocking and eye-opening how it's almost 100% of people <laughs> that are in this space have some variation or degree of the same experience. And, you know, the, the, I, the feeling of isolation on that was what I was not okay with. And that's one of the biggest reasons that I want to talk to people like yourself about that exact issue during this podcast, because... I think if you understand that it's a thing, you can process it better. And if you can process it better, you can be more healthy about how you react to it. Absolutely. And I think the biggest part about it is people just talking about it at all. I and mean, I'm, I'm really glad that you're talking about it on the show. We have a podcast called Startup Therapy, and we talk about this stuff all the time. You know, we talk about all the challenges around the founder journey. And we get a ton of response from people, you know, when they listen to the podcast or maybe like, you know, uh, get some of our newsletters or something. And they said, I, I can't believe you're talking about this. This is exactly the way I feel. I said, you know what? We get to talk to thousands of founders. It's the way all of them feel. Right? This isn't unique to you. Not that you know, you're not your own special snowflake in your own right. But the, <laughs> the, the, the truth is, uh, 
you know, we're all going through this stuff. And if you take a look at what we do for a living, how could we not? Right. And so I think just opening up the conversation is is really important. And again, really glad that you're doing it here. Yeah, I, I think the 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 biggest sort of weight off my shoulders was realizing that uh, th- these challenges were not unique. And so understanding that, you know, the it doesn't change the inputs of the stressors, but it can change the outputs of how I handle them. So I know I have some of my own regimens that help, but I'm curious what what things beyond just acknowledging it and talking about it with anyone else, you know, what what shifts have you made in your life that you have helped you process things in stress better than it was, you know, eight years ago? Uh, we could dedicate a whole show to that, but uh, <laughs> just to, I'll give you the TLDR versions. Um, one of the things I, I discovered uh, were two supplements, and I'm not like a huge supplement promoter, but just for what it's worth, it changed my life. One was a supplement called Five, the number Five HTP, and another one was called DHEA. Kind of interesting combination. These are just regular supplements you can get on Amazon or anywhere else, and they were mood stabilizers essentially. Because like most founders, I had a thing where I was constantly in some sort of invented crisis. At any given time, I'd be waking up at 3 in the morning saying, this has to get solved now or else. And I always had an or else to everything. And uh, I ended up taking those on a whim because I was reading some book by Ray Kurzweil, Who Wants to Live Forever. You can kind of do your own homework on it. But dig into those. They have zero side effects. They take about a month before they start working. And all of a sudden, all of those anxiety spikes just sort of go away. It's unbelievable. It's life-changing for me. And you know, your mileage may vary, but it worked incredibly for me. Uh, the other thing, and this is, this is something that takes, I think, folks' time to get into, um, is adopting a long view of life. I think early in my career, I spent so much time trying to conquer the world in the shortest amount of time possible. And to be fair, it worked. Like, you know, I had some big milestones, et cetera, but the amount of stress it caused was so not worth it. And now I look at it like with startups.com and I say, I've got 50 years to make this a great company, which means, let's say, with what we're dealing with right now with the virus and pandemic, et cetera, I'm like, okay, that'll be a problem this year. It won't be a problem next year or the next year after that, hopefully. And so I think when I started to adopt a long view, it reduced my anxiety a lot. And I started to focus on what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, not what I want to do by the end of this year. And that changed everything. Would you say that sort of feeds into you know, like a focus on legacy to a certain extent? Yes, definitely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, some people look at legacy as something to be egotistical. Like I want my name on the side of buildings or I want a you know, big giant statue in the middle of a Springfield. And the truth is, legacy can just be about your mark on the world uh, personally. You know, the legacy could be how your loved ones think about you. You know, it doesn't have to be specifically this this big ovation to the world. And my legacy or where I want to be the most helpful, notwithstanding with my family, it's a different discussion, is helping the world become founders. That's it. I want to make it easier for everyone in the world to become a founder. That's it. Uh, and that's my legacy. That's all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And it, it may take different forms. You know, right now at startups.com, we have no plans to sell it, but we also don't hate money. If somebody gave us a whole bunch of money, I'd probably take it. And I'd go do something else in the same vein, right? For me, it's the, the business is just a vehicle to do what I'm trying to do. You know, thankfully, you're in a, a later stage of the process where you probably have the financial security and the other support structures to allow the focus on legacy. What would you tell people, you know, or your former self uh, in the early stages when maybe you didn't have so much financial stability uh, and other support mechanisms to allow you to take that longer view on life? 
and in this probably, I'm sure you have thoughts on this because your tweets recently about failure in startups and feeling so invested in it. So what would you tell that earlier version of yourself without all the supports? If you're aligning toward what you care about, like what you really want to do with your life, then it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get there. I mean, by all means, you want to hit certain financial milestones. You want to be able to buy a house, buy a car, etc. I get that. And by all means, that, that definitely has value. But at its core, if you're working collectively toward a goal that you care about, that is, you know, that your work is something that you genuinely care about, and that body of work is cumulative year over year, then you're on the right path. I wasn't on the right path. I built amazing things, but I built them in all kinds of random orders for no particularly good reason and to no real cumulative benefit. And that was a mistake. Uh, I, I wasn't wise enough at the time, wise being I didn't have enough years in the planet to understand why it was wrong. Uh, but in retrospect, I, I, I wish I could have Marty McFly'd myself to say, hey, go this direction. But you know, everything happens for a reason. And hindsight's twenty twenty. You you make the best decisions you can at the time with the information that you have at the time that you make it. So um, yeah, not beating yourself another, up about it. Well, there's another part to that. I'm 45 years old. So I've been, I've been at this since I was 19. And so I've had a lot of reps uh, across a lot of businesses. Uh, one of the things that I've learned as I've gotten a little bit older is that I've got a long time ahead of me. I mean, knock on wood, you know, assuming I have a long time ahead of me. Let's say I've got another 45 to 50 years. I've only really expended 20 plus, 25 plus of them. I have a lot of work to do. It's <laughs> like two more lifetimes of work to do. I don't need to get it all done this year. I'm going to be at this for a very long time. This is my retirement. So I, I'm just, there, there's no version where I'm trying to get this over with so I can go do something else. This is it. This, if I'm 100 years old, I'm hoping to be on the same podcast talking about whatever's relevant at the time. Yeah, you know, it's always uh, inspiring and refreshing when you see the list of really successful businessmen or people that, you know, have found a way to reinvent themselves and they didn't even get started until they were, you know, 55 or whatever. So it puts an accent mark on that. But I know that, you know, now I'm 32, but I know that the 20 year old version of me was very impatient and anxious to get to the next step, right? And think that, oh, I got to get there faster and do things faster. And uh, while I may not be quite as zen about it as you are, I have certainly moved that direction since then as as the years have progressed to realize that, you know, a year, it's it's really okay. if things If things need space to breathe and develop, that's totally fine. Yeah, and I think that there's a difference between being ambitious. I can't stop becoming ambitious. I'm always going to be ambitious. And then the other side of it, which is just foolishly running myself off a cliff. I can be ambitious and measured at the same time. In fact, if I'm doing my job properly, I'm doing both really well. I'm figuring out how to pace myself versus just sprint. When I was younger, I just sprinted because it's all I knew how to do. I was just dumb and full of energy. Now I realize I've got a long time to go. And if, if I'm going to continue to be successful and, and effective at what I'm doing, I've got to pace myself because I've got a lot to do. And, and again, I, I don't think that's one of the things you understand in life until you've been around long enough to really get it. And as I'm talking to you know folks that are, say, 30 years my senior, they're saying the same thing. They're saying, look, when I was your age, when I was 45 years old, I was so young and hungry. I'm like, well, I don't I feel hungry, but I don't feel that young. <laughs> and he said, "No, you, you got to understand, man. Like you're you're not even at the 50, 50 yard line uh, in this journey." And I think when we're let's say thirty two years old, we don't realize how early in the journey we really are. I mean, you know, it's it, we still have so many decades to go. Yeah, it may not feel that way, but that definitely is the the reality for most of us. 
yeah, let's say that you've got eight decades to go. So far, you finished off one, you know, as an adult, like working person. If you put it in that context, you're like, well, shit, like, what's the probability that, that just happened to be the best decade I've, I'd ever have? Probably, Probably pretty low. low. Yeah. Hopefully very low. Great. Well, this has been a, a really great interview. You know, I'm glad that we were able to, every single one of them, they take their own sort of, you know, lefts and rights along the process. And I, I really enjoyed it personally. So thank you for taking the time and sharing your story and your insights. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, love the content of the podcast. Appreciate having me on. Thanks. Absolutely. So if someone wants to connect with you or has other questions or wants to learn more about your businesses, what's the best place for them to go find that information? I'm freakishly easy to access and people rarely know this. Uh, I'm will at startups.com. That's my email address. It's just will with one L, although two L's works too, at startups.com. If you want to email me, you just email me directly. I answer all of my emails. And people don't think that I do, but believe it or not, we send out 20,000 a month and I respond to all the people that respond to me. Beyond that, I'm on uh, all the social networks at, at Will Schroeder. Again, uh, W-I-L-S-C-H-R-O-T as in Tom, E-R. So I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Uh, all basically posting around the same stuff. And if there's anything that that folks you know that are listening uh, need help with, and that could be, say, hey, I'm dealing with some crazy anxiety stuff. I'm trying to raise money for my business, whatever. Uh, reach out to me. And if you like what we're talking about here today, uh, check out Startup Therapy, the podcast, where we go into detail about all of these issues. I think they're all important. You really can't consume enough. Yeah, great. Well, I'll try to remember to put a link to your podcast and uh, the various other things you just mentioned in the description. And again, thanks for your time. And uh, I hope you have a great day and keep you and your family safe. Wash your hands. <laughs>